Our sermon text is 1 Corinthians 14, but before we turn there, we will turn to Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah 28, reading the first 22 verses of that chapter, and then we will flip over to 1 Corinthians 14 and just read verses 20 through 25. So God's holy and inspired word, first from Isaiah and then for 1 Corinthians, Isaiah 28, verses 1 through 22, give your attention to the reading of God's word. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley on whose of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has won who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. They also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. It is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips, And with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Shaol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourges passes through, you will be beaten down by it. 
As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused, to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your, bond, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. And then turning over to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 25. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written... By a people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. As far as the reading of God's word, may it may bless it to us. One Alaskan summer evening, a family sat down for dinner. The dad, who had been at work all day, asked his two boys, ages three and five, what they'd been up to. And nonchalantly, they both responded, we've played with the bears. Mom and dad stopped eating, and their eyes met in concern. The dad then asked, what do you mean that you were playing with the bears? They said, we were we ran around down by the river playing with the bears. Dad quickly ran out back to the river that was very close to their home, and sure enough, in the sand, there were the footprints of his kids mixed with the tracks of two bear cubs. And not far off, the dad found the mama bear, sat there, and watched her cubs play with the boys. The kids had no idea the danger they were in. And kids have a knack for this, don't they? Maybe you remember as a kid that you showed your mom this plant you found only for her to scream that it was poison ivy. Or your toddler got into the knife drawer and is trying to impale the electrical outlet. Or your teenager squeezed 15 of his buddies into his two-door Civic to go to the movies. Well, the Corinthians do not seem to have outgrown this very same childish proclivity. For in worship, they're playing with something that is actually the fire of the curse, and they don't even know. Thus, Paul disciples us to think more maturely so that we can recognize 
that God is truly among us in worship and that his purpose for meeting us is to bless us in his son. So from the opening of this chapter 14, Paul has been contrasting the gifts of tongues and prophecy. And he's been doing so to demonstrate how prophecy or preaching is the greater gift. And prophecy is greater than tongues because it's more expressive of that most excellent way of love. Since prophecy is understandable and intelligible, it can build up and produce fruit in other people. Whereas tongues, they are basically an expression of private piety since no one else can understand the language. And this reminds us of how Paul has been defining tongues and prophecies, prophecy here in Corinthians. Tongues is not just any foreign language per se. Rather, Paul uses it as foreign languages that pretty much no one else knows in the church. So a tongue for Paul here is both another language and an unknown one, except to the speaker, that is. Yet prophecy is God's word in the common language that everyone understands, the clear preaching of the word. And this point is crucial for the next step in Paul's argument. So now that Paul has straightened the the Corinthian priorities out about the gifts, he tells them that they have been acting childish. Their way of thinking about the gifts is immature. This aspect of youth Paul is dealing with is how the kids tend to put false or undue estimation on things. Kids are often pleased with trifles. That is, you take your kid to McDonald's for lunch. She is all giddy about the toy and the Happy Meal. Then she bawls when the toy breaks in the car on the way home, but she's forgotten all about it by bedtime. Kids tend to value things that aren't that important. And this is the Corinthians with tongues. They're giddy with delight over tongues. Ooh, look at this. It's the best thing ever. But tongues, says Paul, is really not that big a deal. And so if you want to be childish in anything, says Paul, let it be an evil. Now Paul shifts the sense of childhood here from immature to that of innocence or inexperience. The Corinthians would do better if they were more concerned with being babies in wickedness. But as it is, their giddiness over tongues is only leading them towards wickedness. They need to change. They need to be more infantile in doing evil and more mature in their thinking. And this call to maturity picks up Paul's image for growing in love from chapter 13. Growing in love is putting childish ways behind you and acting like an adult. Maturity sheds that childish selfishness where the whole world revolves around me and it looks towards the benefit of other people. Their thinking needs to mature in the way of love. And to prove that the Corinthians' thinking is both childish and playing with fire, Paul quotes a line from Isaiah's 28th chapter. 
And as often as the case, Paul's citation of one verse is actually intended to bring to mind the entire context of the whole chapter. So in Isaiah 28, God is rebuking the proud leaders of Ephraim and then Jerusalem who would not listen to him. And God describes the priests and prophets of Israel as being drunk. They're sloshed on beer and wine. But what are the leaders really plastered with? Well, Isaiah says they reel in vision and they stumble in giving judgment. You see, it's not alcohol that intoxicates them, but lies and falsehood. As the leaders boast in verse 15, we've made a covenant with death. We've made lies our refuge. Falsehood is our shelter. The priests and the prophets scoff at God's word and get blitzed on lies. So what then is God's punishment? Well, he will keep them drunk on falsehood. Since the people will not listen to God, God will then only speak to his people through these drunken leaders who only spread more lies. And Isaiah gives us actually a shocking quote of what these leaders will sound like. Yes, Isaiah actually sounds out their drunken message twice in verse 10 and verse 13, which surround verse 11 that Paul actually quotes. And what they sound like in Hebrew is tzav l'tzav, tzav l'tzav, kav l'kav, kav l'kav. This is not real Hebrew. This is a garbled nonsense like a drunken person. It's unintelligible. And this inebriated mumbling is what Isaiah likens to a foreign language. That is, the Lord's punishment is to speak to his hard-hearted people only through these plastered teachers, which is like a message spoken in a foreign language, completely unintelligible. Drunk on the lies is the same thing as a foreign language. The point of Isaiah, then, is that God makes his word incomprehensible to his people as a curse for their refusing to listen. The drunken preaching of lies by the evil prophets is like a foreign language to Israel for their punishment. They cannot understand it, and so then they cannot heed it to repent. God makes his word incoherent as a curse on those who previously refused to hear and obey his clear word. As Paul says in his quote, so that they will not understand me. And this is the point that Paul bases his statement on of verse 22. Tongues are God's word in an unintelligible language, in a speech that cannot be understood by other people. And this form of God's word is not for believers, he says, but for unbelievers. However, here, the meaning of unbelievers is pulled from Isaiah, where it refers not to outsiders of the covenant community, but it refers to the unbelieving scoffers within the covenant. It refers to the rejecters of God's word, those stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and arrogant Israelites who took their refuge in lies and falsehood. 
The unbelievers are those, then, who are in covenant with Sheol. Hence, tongues, as an unintelligible form of God's word, is a sign of curse to them. But this curse is not for believers. God does not inflict such incoherence upon those who eagerly listen to his word and embrace it in faith. Thus, tongues, as a sign of curse, is for the rejecters of God's word. And so, it is only to be expected that the reverse is true of prophecy. Prophecy, or preaching, is God's understandable word. And it is for believers, and not for unbelieving scoffers. To understand the truth, and the beauty of God's word, is a blessing. It is a blessing due for those who believe in Christ, Christ, so they, they, so that they may further be blessed in Him and be built up. But those hard-hearted rejectors have no right to such a blessing. Thus, prophecy is for believers, and tongues for unbelievers. And now that Paul has established this distinction between tongues and prophecy or preaching, he moves to apply it to the real situation which is corrective for the Corinthians. Verse 22, first Paul sets the context. The whole church has come together. This is the context of corporate worship as the church is assembled. Next, in this worship assembly, he says, what if everyone spoke in tongues? Now, Paul here is being a bit hyperbolic, for not everyone could speak another language in Corinth. Yet Paul says everyone because it feeds into the Corinthians' desire. They lusted after speaking in other languages, and so everyone speaking in tongues would be kind of cool to them. And so, as everyone is rattling on in another language, which no one understands except the speakers, imagine now if an outsider or unbeliever visited the church. Now, by the addition of outsider, it is clear that Paul has shifted his meaning of unbeliever here. It no longer refers to a rejecter of God's word within the covenant, but more neutrally to a pagan. Nevertheless, an outsider visits a church service, and all he hears is everyone rambling on in their own language. And the outsider understands none of it. To him, it sounds like a bunch of dogs barking at each other in a kennel. Thus, he thinks they're all mad. The outsider moves towards the door, thinking these people have lost their minds. Because he cannot understand the tongues, they're no benefit to him, and so he considers the church as crazy. But now, Paul takes the same theoretical situation and switches out prophecy for tongues. Now, all the saints are speaking God's word in an intelligible and understandable way. It's the native or common language that everyone is able to understand. In this setting, the outsider can understand God's word. He hears its truth. He perceives the mighty works of God, and his mind is able to take in the lucid and clear message of the gospel. And what's the fruit of the outsider's understanding? 
Well, it's nothing less than conversion. The outsider hears the law of God's word. He's convicted and called to account by God's holiness. He becomes vividly aware that he's a sinner before a holy and righteous God. That is the unbeliever's sinfulness, which he suppressed in unrighteousness deep in his heart, is drawn out by the preaching of God's word. His secret depravity and wickedness of his heart is made palpably present before his conscience. Thus, by the clear proclamation of God's law, the unbeliever is humbled in repentance to fall on his face before God. And then the unbeliever responds to the gospel in faith by worshiping God. As his ears take in the blessed work of Christ, he professes faith, saying, God is truly among you. To embrace Christ in faith is to perceive that Christ by his spirit is present with his people to apply his salvation. In fact, this line about God being among or with you, Paul pulls from Zechariah 8. There, people from other nations grab hold of a garment of a Jew, saying, take us up to Jerusalem to worship with you, for we know that God is among you. This is the true confession of faith that there's no hope except in the Lord. Therefore, what's the fruit of the intelligible and understandable word of God in prophecy or preaching? It's nothing less than true conversion. It is repentance prodded on by God's holiness in the law. It is in, It is faith in the sweet gospel of Jesus Christ as our only hope. Where the unintelligible tongues make the outsider think the church is insane, the clear words of preaching bring conversion. The fruit of tongues is scoffing, but the fruit of preaching is new creation. And from this point by Paul, the apostle once again unfolds the rich beauty of our corporate worship on the Lord's Day. It's no accident that Paul phrases the outsider's profession of faith in the Old Testament accent of God is among you. In the Old Testament, proper worship could only take place in the presence of God. It took place in the temple at God's house. In Zechariah 8, the foreigner declares this line to the Jew as he's going up to Jerusalem. Well, in the New Covenant, even with the loss of both the temple and Jerusalem, the reality of God's presence among us still stands. Indeed, essential to make our worship valid is God's presence. And as the church gathers together for worship in the name of Christ, God is among us, and God is among us in a very specific way. He's among us by the Holy Spirit that our Savior Jesus Christ poured out upon us from on high. It's the spirit of new creation earned for us by Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension that is truly among us as we worship Lord's Day after Lord's Day. As we assemble in the name of Christ, Jesus himself is with us by his spirit. 
And in a way that exceeds the Old Testament reality, God's presence is with you this day and every Lord's day. And this greater than old, this is greater than the Old Testament because Christ is among us as the one who died, but is now alive forevermore. Christ stands among us as the Amen, the firstborn of the dead, the founder and finisher of our salvation. Truly, could anything make worship more beautiful and desirable? No, nothing is more beautiful than Christ being among us by his Spirit. And yet, the means by which the Spirit of Christ is among us is essential to Paul's point here. Thus, the Spirit of Christ is truly among us in worship, but how does the Spirit show himself? How does the Spirit reveal Christ for us in worship? Well, as you probably know, you know how the church has answered this question far too often. Too often the church answers it just like the Corinthians. The Spirit is among us through ecstatic and excited gifts. When everyone is swept away in emotion to rattle off some spiritual language, this is the true sign of the Spirit. Only the tongue speaker has the Spirit. But the irony of it is, this is exactly what Paul is emphatically saying no to. What brings the outsider to confess that God is among you? It's the clear, intelligible preaching of God's word. It is the coherent and rational preaching of the law and the gospel. Indeed, the whole thrust of Paul's argument is that the Spirit makes Christ present by his intelligible word. While to think that unintelligible tongues is how the Spirit is present, Paul says this is childish and immature. Paul's even stronger than this. The lust for tongues is not merely childishness of being infatuated with a cheap McDonald's toy. No, it is the infantile tendency to be moonstruck by something that is actually dangerous. It's the toddler playing with the shiny knives. It's wrestling with bear cubs. And why is this? Because within the covenant community, God makes his word unintelligible only as a curse for stick-necked unbelief. God twists his word into a drunken mumble to punish his people for not listening to his word in the first place. Thus, as the Corinthians speak languages unknown by the people, as they lust after such incomprehensibility in the church, they're actually sowing a curse among God's people. Like salt sown in a field, so is unintelligibility in the church. And God has made himself very clear what happens to teachers and shepherds who end up cursing his flock. This, then, should make us see more clearly the dangerous error of both the Latin Mass and Pentecostal tongue-speaking. The Catholics insisted that only Latin was holy enough to utter the mysteries of God's word. The Pentecostals insist 
true spirituality is found only when you stop using your mind to speak in garbled nonsense. But in both cases, what is the consequences? This teaching brings a curse on God's people. The curse of not understanding God's gospel, and when the gospel is not understood, it's eventually lost. The Catholics lost the gospel of Christ, even to the point of declaring the true gospel an anathema. And the same thing appears to be happening today among Pentecostals at an ever-increasing rate, as they insist that all that matters is speaking in tongues of their own creation and not what you believe about Christ. This should be a warning for us to always keep God's word and gospel clear and intelligible in our worship. It should steer us away from such childish ways and towards the mature way of love. And yet, as much as we ought to be shocked by the evil of prizing unknown languages by the Corinthians, we should also not miss the amazing benefit of preaching. If unknown languages are a curse, then this makes understandable preaching what? It's a blessing. Yes, God's understandable word in the local language in worship is the means whereby Christ makes himself present in the spirit. And his preached word makes Christ present for a blessing. Beloved, every Lord's Day, God calls you to worship. God meets with you on the Lord's Day to bless you. He doesn't assemble you to judge you. He doesn't meet with you to curse you. God's not present for your destruction. Rather, God has assembled you in Christ. He summons you in the name of Jesus. The Father gathers you, gathers you, clothed in Christ's righteousness, so that all curse and judgment is in the past. All the justice of God has been met by Christ for you, so that blessing is all that remains for us. Yes, Christ turns away the wrath of God so that only the light of his shining face graces your heart. True conviction of sin and repentance is part of this blessing as we are instructed by the law. But in Christ, this is also a blessing whereby the old man is further put to death. Therefore, beloved saints, may you never forget that God's word is painstakingly explained and made intelligible to you because God loves you and desires to bless you in his son. The law is read and the gospel is announced because the father has commanded a blessing for you in Christ. Our worship is intelligible and focused on God's word so that Christ is among us to bless us and to convert outsiders when they visit. Our worship is this way, so that we may truly appreciate the abundant grace and mercy found in the benediction. Yes, God closes his meeting with us with a blessing, the glorious announcement that God has blessed you in Christ and that you go from worship 
with the peace of God resting upon you. Yes, God sends you off every Lord's Day with his blessing and peace to keep you safe until Christ comes again. Praise the Lord then for his word, for his spirit, and may we bless the Lord until he comes again. Amen. Let us pray.